Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Patman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And if you've been engrossed in in a book um, by your favourite philosopher and when you finish reading, you realise that it's after four o'clock on a Thursday and you think you've missed your favourite radio show, Radical Philosophy, don't despair because you can access Radical Philosophy on the 3CR website. Just Google Radical Philosophy 3CR and there should be one program, Audio On Demand, and another four podcasts available. And you'll see a link on the right-hand side, and that's a Facebook link. And you don't have to be a member or signed up on Facebook yourself to access this. So if you click on the Facebook link, you will be able to listen to all the previous episodes. And I'm speaking to Teresa Hendel, who is a Doctor of Philosophy. Welcome to the program. Hello, thanks for having me. What was it that inspired you to study gender selection? Well, I got inspired to start thinking about sex selection when I was maybe 18, and I was in my first year of uni, and I was already enrolled in feminist theory and all that. And one day I picked up a newspaper and read that there are millions of missing women in the world, and I was completely shocked. I was really stunned because I um, I grew up in, in Central Europe, in Prague, in, in the Czech Republic, and I was very well educated. And as a Central European, I knew a lot about human rights violations, I knew a lot about the Holocaust. I knew a lot about Soviet crimes. My own family had to live through a military occupation by the Soviet Union, you know, all these awful things. And they told me all about it. And I was very aware about human rights issues. And I was quite a serious kid. I was into books and really interested to figure out how we stop or even prevent uh, human rights violations. And I had a feminist spirit, so I was very interested in women's rights and everything related to women's freedom and autonomy. And so I was in absolute shock that it took me 18 years to learn that there are these millions of missing women due to preference for male children in many different societies. And there are different estimates, some saying that there are around 130 million missing women, some 
estimating that there are nearly 200 million missing women, which is bigger than any genocide that we've ever heard of. And I couldn't believe, you know, how come that we do not read about this problem daily? How come it's not on the news? How come it's not on our agenda? And so I started, it all started with me getting really angry. I was so angry at a world where women are not considered valuable enough to be born or brought up, and a world that does not consider this a big enough problem. And I immediately knew that it was my topic. I I had another subject that I was kind of pursuing. I just immediately dropped it, and I, I started writing about sex selection, and I've, I've been doing it for the last 14 years. I've been researching different aspects of sex selection. I looked at how European media covered the subject. I looked at bioethical debates about sex selection, and most recently I researched sex selection in Australia, and I was really interested in exploring the discourse in the West, which often portrays sex selection as a problem if it happens elsewhere, but not if it's you know happening in our own yard, because it is argued that gender equity exists in the West, so whatever happens here is is fine. And I, I think that it's not a convincing <laughs> line of reasoning. We are not given evidence that gender equity exists in the West. On the contrary, we have plenty of evidence that it doesn't exist. And so I find it really interesting to explore these issues in, in, in the West and in Australia and just see why are people selecting, what are their motives, and what kind of ethical issues are implied. What are the main reasons why people want to choose the sex of their child? So there are different, a range of reasons why parents select the sex of their children. Probably it comes down to two major motives. One of them is strong gender preference, and the other one is a desire for a so-called gender-balanced family. So regarding the strong gender preference, some parents want to have a child of a particular sex because they believe that only that child will be capable or more capable of something. So in strongly patriarchal societies, parents are motivated to produce a male offspring because discriminatory social structures make it impossible for daughters to provide for families or to carry the family name, etc. Or parents desire daughters because they believe that daughters will be more family-oriented and will look after them when they're old. Now, this is quite a prevalent motive in the U.S., but also Japan. There have been some studies that suggest that Japanese parents, they used to have a preference for male offspring, but they're kind of shifting towards the preference for daughters because they believe that daughters will look after them when they grow old, which is quite quite interesting. Like quite often it's argued that it's good for children to be desired or it's good for daughters to be selected for, but when you think about parents who might be selecting for daughters because they want them to look after them when they're old, it's kind of problematic or it seems like children might be instrumentalized because daughters are basically assumed to be uh, looking after their parents when, when they're old.
Now, the second reason is the so-called family balancing. That happens when um, some, some parents select because they want to have, they want to make sure that they have children of both sexes because they believe that children come in two genders and boys and girls are essentially different and they have different characteristics and therefore offer very different parental relationships. And this is quite often uh, presented as a harmless and an all right type of sex selection. However, when we look closer at the motives, family balancing is based on a very binary understanding of, of children and they're based on very gender stereotypical assumptions about children which can limit children's autonomy and well-being. So on the one hand we have the strong gender preference and there are issues with gender hierarchy and on the other hand we have a family balancing and there are a lot of issues with gender stereotyping and both gender hierarchy and gender stereotyping are aspects of sexism. So I believe that family balancing is sexist just like sex selection based on strong gender preference. Yeah, I had three older brothers myself and when when my mother had me, you know, a baby girl, she was just so excited. But I, I don't think I was really the daughter she hoped for because I didn't like pink frilly dresses that she wanted to dress me in and I, I used to scream when she tried to take me to ballet classes. I can remember hiding my ballet shoes so I, I didn't have to go. And she was she was just really disappointed that I didn't like those things. So do, do you think this is a fairly common problem? <laughs> well, yes. And I had I had a similar kind of experience. I'm myself uh, the only child of a single mom, and I quite often wondered, you know, if she had some traditional ideas regarding what will become of me. And there's this idea that daughters will be more family-oriented and homely, and I was very independent and stubborn. My mom actually said that I wanted to be free when I was like nine. <laughs> and I, we, we traveled a lot when I was a kid, and I, it's addictive. I I fell in love with travel and adventure, and I took off when I was like 21 and studied in six different countries and ended up doing a PhD in Australia. So no homely, dependent, domestic girl whatsoever. And interestingly... I've realized so often, uh, so many times in life, when I was so much more adventurous, independent, and courageous than a lot of men that I've met. So I wonder, where do these ideas about others come from? Where, why are we still imposing these stereotypes on children at this day and age? And why don't we let them be free? Exactly. Uh, do you know what the legal situation, the current legal situation is with choosing a, a baby's gender in this country and overseas? So the legal situation, it's, it's quite complex when we look at the whole world. Sex selection is, for social reasons, is currently banned in Australia. And it's illegal in New Zealand. It's illegal in many countries in Europe. 
However, it is legal in four states in the U.S. and illegal but practiced in Thailand. And it's also legal in Cyprus. And I, I've been coming across some sources that suggest that sex selection is also available in a range of countries around the Middle East. Now, more on the situation in Australia. In Australia, sex selection for social reasons is banned by regulation. And three states have particular laws as well, Victoria, Western Australia, and South Australia. Now, the regulation works in a way that the National Health and Medical Research Council's guidelines on the use of assisted reproductive technology, they ban sex selection for social reasons. And this means that any clinic that wants to be licensed in order to offer IVF, any, this clinic cannot offer sex selection for social reasons. Now, under these guidelines, it is legal to provide sex selection for so-called medical reasons uh, to prevent the birth of a child with a serious genetic condition. Now, there's a bit of a problem that what is a serious genetic condition is not defined, so this is very much open up for debate. And there is uh, controversial, um, there's controversy about what is considered a serious genetic condition and disability rights critique is very interesting. Like there are debates that I think rightly problematize what is considered a genetic condition worth selecting against and what kind of impact it has on on people. So that's definitely something that um, I think we should have more of a debate about. But sex selection for social reasons is, is banned, and currently these guidelines are under review. And there's been quite a bit of lobby in Australia to legalize sex selection for social reasons. It's coming from parents who want to have access to sex selection, and it's also coming from clinics who are very much interested to offer you know, a service that is worth thousands of dollars. So the second round of public submissions just ended now, and we will see. I'm kind of interested to hear what the NHMRC will say. The current guidelines say that sex selection for social reasons is undesirable because one's admission to life should not depend on their sex, and I think that's a really important statement. If Australia wants to maintain the commitment to gender equity, then one should not be desired conditionally based on their chromosomal sex. So that will, that will be really interesting to see. I, I strongly believe that at this day and age, sex should not define and limit a person, just like our ideas about race should not define and limit a person. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Dr. Teresa Hendel about sex selection. I mean, when you, when you say that it's uh, sex selection is is not legal, I, I, would there be a certain percentage of people who would actually be pregnant with a baby and go and have the, the um, sex of the baby found out, and then have an abortion if the baby wasn't the preferable sex? That is plausible, and there is anecdotal evidence that this is happening and sex-selective abortions are being used as a, as means of sex selection, yes. And it's a bit of a... It's 
a bit of an issue because as much as we might find it problematic that women use sex-selective abortions to select the sex of their kids, at the same time, there is good reason to not intervene with women's access to abortion. Because if we actually legislate around sex-selective abortions, there is a high probability that we will somehow restrict women's access to safe and affordable abortion. And that's very undesirable, and that would have a severely negative impact on women's lives. So I think that there is a good argument for keeping, maintaining a ban on sex selection via IVF, and then just making sure that uh, we raise enough awareness around these issues and we keep promoting gender equity in the society. And just, I don't think that there is an argument to restrict women's access to abortion. It's an absolute requirement for women's reproductive autonomy and body Now, is there any benefit to parents actually knowing the gender of their baby before it's born? I've, I've heard people say, oh, it's really good to know whether it's a boy or a girl because then we know whether to paint the, the nursery pink or blue. <laughs> well, the issue of that is that the parents will never know um, the gender of their child prenatally. What they know is chromosomal sex, but chromosomal sex is not gender. So they they assume that, you know, because they know the chromosomal sex, they can make assumptions about who their child will become and what kind of traits they'll have. But that can be very self-defeating because a lot of children will grow up and develop and pursue a different kind of life or they will develop gender non-conformist behavior or they may not identify with their parents' preferred gender, there are transgender children, or they will not match their parents' assumptions about sex. There are children with intersex variations who do not match the kind of assumptions about either male or female bodies. So there is diversity in in society and the problem with sex selection and the kind of problem with making a lot of assumption based on determining chromosomal sex in utero is that these assumptions are largely based on gender stereotypes and these gender stereotypes are problematic because they they can limit children's opportunities for pursuing their hobbies and developing autonomously. They disregard children's individuality because every single child is a future individual. And parents are probably going too far to, you know, if, if, if they make really big assumptions based on the chromosomal sex. So perhaps it would be a better idea to, to stop telling people which chromosomal sex traits their children have, babies have? Well, that's, some, some argue that. I think that it might be just a good idea to tell parents or that 
chromosomal sex does not equate gender and that the fact that their child has some kind of chromosomal sex doesn't mean that they will be a particular type of a person. You know, as as you said, you didn't like pink and you probably are a chromosomal female. And so maybe the kind of decision that we will paint a room on pink or another room on uh you know we will paint it blue that kind of that's a very narrow <laughs> view of um on kids and what they will be like there will be and there are so many other colors <laughs> you know it's yes, like yes, the pink are. and blue world <laughs> seems a very limited <laughs> and limiting world to live in uh, yes, there certainly are. Especially now, there's there's a lot more variety in in baby clothes than, than there was a few years back when the when it was really just pink or blue. And I remember when I took my young daughter, a few months old, to baby swim. There was only pink or blue bathers. That was the only choice. And I I certainly didn't like pink, and her father didn't like pink either. So. I said to the teacher, I said, no, I said, well, we'll have the blue ones. And she was quite shocked. And she said to me, oh, did her father want a boy? And I said, no, he actually did want a girl, but he wanted a girl that he could dress in blue. And she looked quite horrified <laughs> at my response yeah. to that. Well, I've never really liked pink. And my favourite colours always been black. But um, that caused a lot of problems too because it, it seemed to be out of the spectrum of, of normal favourite colours that people yeah. had. And I, I remember from quite a young age, I was probably about three, when I decided my favourite colour was black. And people will, would look quite horrified at me and I, I think that I I'd, was quite a bad person for having this <laughs> black preference. <laughs> Yes, but, I have um, the same black preference. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's taken me many, many years to to just um, to realise that I can just wear black. And the, to me, there is only one colour, and that's black. And you can even actually... it's, it's really It's really interesting, the kind of assumptions people make, because I remember I always loved black, and I always listened to electro-metal. And my mum's friend, I've, I had I had a really really close friend back then and her mom actually told her not to talk to me because she thought that I'm into Satanism because I wear black and listen to metal. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh yeah, that, that's, that's quite funny. And I think it's also interesting when, you know, the kind of, the encounters with this kind of narrow um, view on the world are quite interesting once you start going against the stream. So I have a lot of life experiences when I went against the stream and I went against the kind of traditional assumptions about what a girl should be like or what, you know, she should study or how she should live. And it's just, it's really interesting when you, even in like little things, when you when you transgress these kind of lines that are drawn around you, how much how much violence and how much, you know, may it be verbal violence or just kind of a lot of sanctions that you experience once you go against against the stream. And it's, it's really interesting. It's kind of intriguing um, because I think that we have that illusion that women are free these days and we're all autonomous. And yet 
there's a bunch of stereotypes that are really putting us into our places once we go beyond the line. And that's that's really interesting how how much and how strong these stereotypes still are. Getting into them, I don't think that we should be allowing any kind of procedures that reinforce these kind of stereotypes and kind of take us backwards. Because one thing that I also wanted to touch on is the fact that Australia was or is still, if sex selection is not legalized, it's on quite a good track to become a more gender progressive country. So you might know that in 2013, the high court ruled that any person can formally identify as of non-specific gender. So the court actually recognized the factual diversity and gender identities in Australian society. And now if we if we allow sex selection, we're basically going backwards to a very binary view on children. So you're either or and nothing beyond. And that's problematic. There are some people that have argued that the one-child policy in China has been quite harmful because men aren't able to find wives or men's parents aren't becoming grandparents because their sons aren't able to find wives and to go on to have children. I think that's quite an issue in China. However, I think that we also need to make sure that first and foremost we recognise the harm to women in, in such a context, the fact that when girls are not considered valuable enough to be born and and brought up, that is the biggest harm in, in sex selection based on strong gender preference. It's not the harm to men that they won't have available wives because women are first and almost individuals and autonomous human beings. So it is harm to them that they are not allowed to exist. I kind of... I read this argument a lot that, you know, poor men who won't find wives, but women are not wives or available partners for men. Women are people, and we need to let them exist, and we need to value their life as much as we value anyone else's life. Um, and China China is in a fair bit of trouble because also the fact that there was one-child policy for so long means that this the population is rapidly aging and this will create a lot of socioeconomic issues and there are a whole lot of other problems. Basically, the the lack of women in Chinese society um, also stemmed a lot of debates and security studies because when you have so many men, some call it surplus men, it's, it's quite a horrible term, there's a worry that, you know, this might actually lead into a military conflict because it's quite a traditional society and it is assumed that men will grow up and they will marry and have children and, you know, this is what their life will be like. So if this is not available, then what is the plan B? And, yeah, there are theorists who are 
quite worried about uh, a possible militarization of a society where there are so many more men than women. Well, thanks for coming on to the program today. Thank you for having me. And I've been speaking to Dr. Teresa Hindle about gender selection. I'm Kathy Weiss, and this is Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio. And that's all we have time for today. I hope you've enjoyed the program and I've certainly enjoyed your company. And now that was part one of a two-part interview. So be sure to tune in next week for part two of Gender Selection. 